0: You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist, family nurse practitioner, and chief nursing officer at Nurse.org. Now, guys, we have a very interesting and delightful guest that's going to be coming on. And I have to say how serendipitous this is because we book interviews and we kind of have an idea of what we're going to talk about. And lo and behold, this past week when I worked, it was like the ideal experience for me to appreciate our guests even way more. Uh, and let me tell you what I mean. So like this past uh, this past week, I, I'm an emergency room nurse practitioner. Um, I've not seen it all and heard it all, guys, although some of y'all think so. I haven't. And we had, I had a young gentleman come in and um, I feel like he's like early 20s and he'd been smoking and drinking with some friends, fell asleep and then he woke up and he didn't feel the same. He's like, you know what? I feel like I was sexually assaulted. Like there are parts of my body that don't feel the same. I've not done anything. And he came to the emergency room to uh, get examined um, because he felt that he'd been sexually assaulted. Now, I'm going to be honest. I am so used to like heart attacks and strokes and stabbings and traumas and stuff like that. This is not a situation that I knew every, you know, it wasn't uh, intuitive to me as far as what I needed to do. Some basic things, yes, but everything, no, because it just pulled in a whole nother world of how do you manage people who've been sexually assaulted, Uh, getting police involved, law enforcement reports, you know, not tampering with potential evidence and a whole bunch of other things And we worked through it. But at this point, I had realized, oh, my gosh, I am talking to Leah um, very soon. And like this is the perfect scenario for her to walk me through because she's the expert in this. And so and you guys know her. You guys know her and love her. She's off the clock uh, on social media like you, you guys follow her. I know you do. But I want you guys to please welcome to the show. We have Leah Helmbrett. She is a forensic nurse examiner. Um, she's been a nurse for over 14 years. I mean, she's traveled. She's done so many things. She's even worked on the opposite end as a recruiter. And during pandemic, she came back to us, guys, like, you know, she was a recruiter, but she came back. Leah is a forensic nurse examiner and forensic nurse examiner. So please welcome her to the show. Leah, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so I know I kind of teed up this conversation and people are like, ooh, let's get into it. But first, I always like to ask all of our guests, you know, why nursing? And what was your journey?
1: You know, honestly, mine, I'm sure people are like, oh, I wanted to help people, and this is what I've always wanted to do. Honestly, I had no idea. I uh, my dad was a physician and I used to he would take me to the hospital to make rounds with him sometimes. And if an emergency came up, he had had me sit at the nurse's station for the longest time. I thought nurses just played games and ate candy because that's what they would do with me while my dad was um, in with this other emergency. And when I got to college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so it was almost like a hurry up and choose something. So I was like, okay, well, let me try this. And I had absolutely no idea uh, what I was in for. But, you know, getting into it and starting um, in the nursing field definitely was hard and it's been hard, but it's probably one of the most flexible and great careers that I could have chosen. So it was, I was just like very lucky that way that it's something that I happened to fall into.
0: Oh, good. And you know what? I think. People who've been practicing nursing for a while, when you can still say that you love it and this is what you want to do, then like you like that's great, you know. Because sometimes nursing can be really hard, guys. I don't. There are several times I'm like, oh, is this really? I don't. I don't know if I'm about this life. Like it's really, it's really tough. But I'm glad that even you know all these years into it, you're still glad that you, that you're working in this profession, happy to be working in this profession. And Leah, I know you did travel nursing for a while, so you've traveled, you've seen a lot of things, been a lot of places. You've even been on the end of recruiting some of us at some point. So like, you know, all the ins and outs. But I have to say, you are uh, work currently in a very interesting, unique role that not many nurses can say that they've worked in, like myself. Oh, I worked in ICU, I worked in ER, med surgery, I floated. Um, the work that you do is not any work that people just kind of float in and float out of. So if you can, can you tell us
1: a little bit more about
0: what your current role is and what it is that you do?
1: I am a forensic nurse examiner and a sexual assault nurse examiner. And so basically what I do is I work with patients who have been affected by domestic violence, strangulation, uh, sexual assault, and human sex trafficking. So what happens is someone will come into the emergency room um, looking for help or medical attention. And then I get called in if they meet a certain criteria and I do all of the evidence collection. I listen to what happened, you know, what was done to these patients, and then from there, that helps to drive my exam in determining where I could find potential DNA. And then after that, we make sure that we can um, give them any prophylactic medications that they might need. Let's say if they were sexually assaulted and they need the morning after pill, right? Pregnancy prevention. HIV prevention, STD, prophylaxis, then we have standing orders and we can order that. And then as well as providing uh, post-trauma resources because we know that the trauma doesn't just stop there right after getting this exam done, right? There's a whole road ahead of them. So on top of that, making sure that they know their reporting options because just to have one of these exams done uh, does not mean that you have to talk to the police if you are not ready to, because there's only a certain time limit to where you can collect evidence as opposed to a time limit to when you can report to police. Wow. Okay. So
0: guys, when Leah was saying that, I was in my head playing back like, oh, what did we do in the emergency room? Um. And listen, you don't know what you don't know, right? I think- And I'm not going to say that they don't teach us in nursing school, but I was thinking back, I was like, did I really get all this in nursing? I don't think that I did. I don't really think that I did. And even in your onboarding, in the onboarding to ER, I know when you take the CEN, which is the Specialist Certification for Emergency Room Nurse, there is some mention of this. But I think what Leah just said in that quick little one minute soundbite, I was like, ooh, a lot. I learned a lot there. And Leah, the work that you're doing is so important. And I'm just going to share some stats that I got, guys. And Leah, you'll tell me if this is a website to go to or not. I hope it is. Uh, I went to the Rain website, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They're the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. And according to that website, it said, Every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. One out of every six American women who has been a victim of an attempted or completed and they use the word rape here, but guys, I really want to caution us with that word because that can be triggering. Okay, um, we don't want to trigger anyone's trauma. So I think the word sexual assault is pro- is more appropriate. And then it said about three percent of American men—that's one in every thirty-three—have experienced attempted or contemplated sexual assault in their lifetime. So those are things that we're always that we talk about readily in healthcare because when we think of healthcare, oh, your diabetes, your high blood pressure, your cholesterol. You know what's your BMI, but we have to recognize that unfortunately these things happen, and we definitely need to bring in specialists to educate us as to what we're supposed to do in these scenarios. Because as you mentioned, Lee, it sounds like there's some time frames and things that we need to be considerate about. And let me ask the terminology. Oftentimes we say, "Oh, we, we got to send someone to a SART facility." That's what I kept hearing in the instance that I, the example that I described earlier about when I went to work that Friday, people were saying, oh, we need to transfer the patient to a SART center. Is that correct? Or do we like find, is there someone like yourself who comes to our
1: hospitals? So I wish, you know, my, if I could have one wish, I would wish that, well, I wish that there wasn't sexual assault and human trafficking and domestic violence, but I wish that we were in all hospitals, but we're not, right? We're unfortunately not. And so, I think I had first heard SART. SART is different depending on where you are. So, in California, I believe it's called SART, uh, which is the first time I had heard that a while ago. Everywhere else, um, pretty much, it's going to be a SANE, S-A-N-E, sexual assault nurse examiner, and then a SART is actually A group of people consisting of a sane nurse, advocates, a prosecutor, police officers to actually go over a um, case, like specific cases on was there a break in the system? How can we do things better? Um, and just like trying to make this whole process better. So in other places, that's what a start is, but I guess it's called different everywhere you go. So a lot of hospitals in let's say rural areas, they don't won't have anyone to come out there and collect evidence, right? Or the closest person is going to be hours away. And so sometimes you can find a saying either in the emergency room or they are at advocacy centers. But in the instance that there is nothing even close, it's going to be up to that emergency room nurse to collect that evidence. And a lot of the times they've never done it before, and maybe there's like some book with dust on it in the corner that has instructions on how to do it. But it's very nerve wracking, right, if if you've never done it before, because there is certain ways to collect the evidence, even when it comes down to swapping. And that I can get into later on. But yeah, I mean, we're either in advocacy group centers, we can be at police stations, we can be in emergency rooms. It just depends on who is opening up positions for that and wanting to actually put the money into hiring that position. Because unfortunately, we don't really bring in that much uh, revenue. Hospitals are are corporations. Okay, so I...
0: Oh, gosh. Now, kind of pivot a little bit to the money, but I won't pivot. But I know that in healthcare, there are sort of things that are very expensive. But these, if you're needing someone to come in because of a, a sexual assault or trauma or human trafficking, that is needed, guys. It's, it's kind of like one of those high flow, excuse me, high acuity, low flow things. Doesn't happen all the time. But when it does happen, it needs to happen. So Leah, I'm sure you and people who do your type of work are well worth your dollars because when it hits home, right, when it's you, when it's your friend, it's your family, like, I want this and this this and that. And then to be told like, well, it's not really in the budget. So we got to do that. Like, no, that's not acceptable. And I have to say this. Now, I've never had to collect evidence, but I read about it when I was doing my CEN certification. And guys, it sound it seemed really tedious and you had to do it a certain way. You didn't want to contaminate evidence. Like, You got to put stuff like in a brown, is it a brown paper bag? Like, I don't know. They're just
1: because it goes into storage. And if you put it in plastic and it's wet, then it's a higher chance of growing mold on it as opposed to a paper bag.
0: Where do we learn this stuff? Like, where are we going to learn this stuff from, Leah? Like, we need people like yourselves who are very knowledgeable to raise awareness. Now, I know it's a very sensitive topic, guys. It's very emotional. It's very sensitive. Um, It's, you know, we hate that we even have to have this type of specialty work, right? Like as Leah said, we wish this didn't even exist. We wish this didn't happen. But if it were to happen, we as healthcare providers need to be very knowledgeable about it. Now, before I get kind of further into some of the things that we should know and do at the the bedside, I need to ask Leah, how did you get into this? Where does one go if this is the type of work that you want to do?
1: Yeah. So a lot of states will have programs and it really varies, right? So in my state where I'm from, I took the Colorado SANE SAFE program, which is actually government funded. So it is a free program and it's open to anybody with an RN, but it is more geared towards Colorado law because in each state, you're going to have different laws, different reporting options. Um, And so it was really great because it's all online, self-paced didactic. And then afterwards, you go down to Colorado Springs and you do a two-day clinical. Um, and then after that, then you can start working as uh, you get a certificate. So you're not certified, right? Uh, you have to take a national exam for that. But then uh, you are certif- you get a certificate to practice as a SANE, f and e SANE. And then from there, you can start looking for jobs. And then that's a whole nother thing on like what are hospitals requiring in order to work as a SANE. But that's somewhere to start. You can also check with the Academy of Forensic Nursing and the International Association of Forensic Nurses. Both can be helpful in helping you find a program in your area um, that also includes clinicals because that's going to be the tough part. You have to find a place to actually do clinicals. Right now with the Academy of Forensic Nursing, if you want to become a member, uh, they are having a 20% discount on memberships um, if you use spring 23 code to sign up. And they're really great too because every Wednesday they have a webinar that also includes CEUs, continuing education, which you'll need, right, and in order to sit for an exam, a national exam. And so it's it's really great to, they have so many different educational options and opportunities. So that's uh, a place to start, um, three places to start. Leah, what are some of the most common mistakes or
0: oversights that we as nurses make How do we drop the ball most often when it comes to completing the service or getting these resources to the patient?
1: I think most of it is just putting our own judgments in front of healthcare, right? So let's take that patient that you had that came in and they just like felt away But they had been drinking and doing drugs. And so some people, like, let's start with, some people might not feel comfortable even talking about sexual assault or domestic violence. And so we'll stick them in a room and we'll kind of just like tiptoe around them instead of just going forward and and just saying, hey, I'm I'm so sorry that this happened to you. You know, if they don't know what actually happened, or if they do, I'm so sorry somebody did this to you, right? Actually putting the blame on someone other than them, because it really doesn't matter if they were drunk, if they were high, what they were wearing, what time of day or night, it's never okay to sexually assault somebody. And uh and that's why we say it's always good to start by believing. Because us in healthcare, our judgments on this, our opinions on what we think happened to them means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. And So if we go in by starting by believing and being supportive instead of kind of whispering like, oh, they must be lying or, oh, I can't believe they were doing this or that, it makes the patient feel more comfortable to open up to us, to seek help in the future, to tell their friends if it were to ever happen to their friends or family, hey, I went here and I was very well supported, right? And that's what we want, is we want people to come forward and get help. And this doesn't always end up with a guilty sentence in court, right? What it does, well, our main goal as healthcare workers is to make sure that they are getting the proper healthcare. So that's getting those prophylactic medications, that's getting those trauma resources, right? We're not the police, we're not investigators, and so I think the biggest issue and the biggest obstacle that we have in healthcare is just getting over our own biases.
0: You hit the nail on the head with that one because a lot of my coworkers like the, the triage nurse and some other folks are like, "Oh, he was what do you expect when you're doing drugs? Like probably, nothing probably happened. He's probably hallucinating." Like there were, uh, there was a lot of judgment circling around there. And so when I went and I and I had the conversation with the gentleman I led in there with believing because even still, even if even if someone is living a lifestyle that you would not lead, um, doesn't mean that they deserve to be assaulted or even, you know, even the perception. If you thought if if you even thought somebody had assaulted uh, your friend, your daughter or someone, you know, you'd be upset. You'd want services. And Leah, I think you raise awareness to I think many of us uh, and maybe I'll just use myself as an example. I thought of that immediate moment. It didn't dawn on me, oh, I got, you know, the, the post, like, do they need them? And this was a gentleman, so maybe not in this case, but did, would someone need a morning after pill? Are there prophylaxis that they may need for STDs or some other communicable disease? Like, I'll be on it in the ER. It's like, we're patching your emergency and encouraging you to go to your, fo- your provider or to a specialist. So it's not always on the top of my mind. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that
1: and just um just to kind of inject there interject there um you know what better person to assault and get away with it than someone who is high or drunk or has mental health issues or somebody who is most likely to not be believed right so that's where we need to start is by holding back our own biases as healthcare workers and just being present there with our patients And letting them know that they are supported.
0: Right. And I'll just kind of segue into something else because Leah, you're also doing some work with, um, and I'll let you, you should talk more about the group and the work you're doing, but with uh, raising awareness to human trafficking and what that may look like. I'll be honest. I don't always, I don't necessarily know what that looks like. I think I might know some, probably some obvious, obvious signs, but the subtle signs, I probably, I would probably miss them. Not because I don't care about them, but just because I may not be as aware. So can you talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing around human trafficking? Because I'm, although I wish this weren't the case, I'm going to say, I'm probably pretty sure nurses who are listening to this, someone at some point in their nursing clinicals or their profession has probably encountered someone uh, experiencing human trafficking and we didn't know it.
1: Yes. So we are um, currently right now working with the Academy of Forensic Nursing to even start as early as middle school in educating about human trafficking because it is very prevalent in our own country. I think when people think of human trafficking, they think of maybe like the movie taken with liam neeson. and and that's not really the case, right? forty two percent of traffickers are actually going to be parents of child trafficking. So they're going to be people that we know. They're going to be boyfriends. They're going to be friends of family. They're going to be the uncle, someone within the family. And so people who come into the emergency room who are in trafficking, they're not going to full out come right out and say that they're in trafficking um, because most often they're with their trafficker. They're not never allowed to go anywhere alone. Sometimes they're being taken across state lines, so maybe they don't know where they are. They won't have access to their own identification. Whenever um, you ask them a question, their trafficker is going to speak for them, and uh, and it's very hard to get them alone. And on top of that, even if you do manage to get them alone and ask them, many of them aren't going to come forward. And I think it was really well written by this former pimp who wrote a book. He got out of the pimp business and he wrote a book. And he said, you take away everything that they have and only give them what they need. You, the pimp, are the cause and solution to all of their problems. You give them the poison and then sell them the cure. So they basically have control, total control over these patients, right over their over their victims, and so it's it's really difficult because you can be sitting there as the nurse and be like, I know they're in trafficking, I know it, right? This doesn't feel right, but if they won't say anything and you know they're not ready to get help, there's not much you can do. And even if we were to get people out of, let's say, uh, these human trafficking situations or domestic violence situations that doesn't promise them complete safety it doesn't promise them you know we're not promising them this brand new life right like of oh we'll we'll give you a place to live and we'll give you all of the funding you need like that's not what we do here in the US right so it's very very difficult but what i would suggest is if you are able to get them alone right let's say oh, um, we need to get you into, you know, to have this test done, um, and somehow get them away from their trafficker, you can say if they say, no, I'm not in trafficking, you say, okay, you know, we're actually just trying to spread this information. So if you just happen to know somebody who is, here's a number for a national or like the state trafficking um, hotline, right, if you ever know anybody that needs help. And so that way, You can, it's kind of like saying like, I know, but, uh, and still giving them some resources for help, but, you know, that's really the most you can do. And it's still, if someone does deny it or is like very standoffish when you even mention it, that's, again, hold your biases to yourself um, because it's not as easy as just getting up and being like, yep, I'm in trafficking, help me, take me out of this. Right, because they literally have nothing to their name. Wow. Now let me
0: ask this. Let's say you are taking care of someone. And guys, I know we're I might be putting a heavy emphasis on the ER, but I think that's because just many times are first point of contact to the healthcare system. But this could you might find this out later once they're maybe in your in your unit or maybe they're visiting your clinic or something. I don't know. But Leah, what do we do if someone says help? Or we identify it and they say, I need help, but I'm afraid. Like, what do we as nurses do? Like, do I just cause most people are like, well, tell the charge nurse? Okay, well, what if you are the chargers? Or what if there's no chargers in the round? Or what, you know, like this person has opened themselves up. We have a probably a narrow window of time to really help this person into safety. What do we do?
1: Yeah, so safety that is the number one um priority. And so within these hospital systems or in your community you know, just making sure that uh, secretly, right, with their permission, because they're asking for help, right? So you don't do this if they're not asking for help. But if they are asking for help, you contact your local police department, you notify hospital security, right? You make sure that there's going to be a lockdown, you know that, that they know the situation, that there's a very dangerous situation that's going on. You contact the local human trafficking um, hotline, And see if they can send an advocate out. You know, there's a ton of things that can get the ball rolling with that. And the number one thing is to get that person um, away from their trafficker and in a safe location. Wow.
0: I had a flashback of a time of a patient who, she was a younger lady, like early 20s. She'd already had like five kids. She was there pregnant again in the emergency room. And every time we would ask her a question, she'd look over to the guy to answer for her. He answered everything. Whenever we needed something, he had it like, oh, here's this or here's that. So when you said those things, I'm like, oh, shoot, that was happening back then. And there was something we wanted to do something for her, but it required, uh, I think, like a hospital admission. There was something about her current pregnancy and she'd be better suited for admission. He didn't want her to be admitted. And I just remember like her, him having a conversation with her, she was getting scared. He's like, he has a gun. He has a gun. And I was like, whoa. Like, and I remember the, you know, contacting hospital, uh, security. They called the police, police came and like then like he left. It was just, it was the whole whirlwind. It was like near shift change guys. So I, I ended up, you know, I don't I didn't get to finish the whole story. But I just remember that was scary. It was scary for me as a nurse too, because I wanted to help. I didn't know what was going on, but I could see the fear in her face and I was worried about putting her in more danger, but when you know when she said, oh, he has a gun, he has a gun, I took that as a, I need help. She didn't come out and say, I need help, but she said, he has a gun. And I was like, oh shit, we all need help right now. So is there anything, like you mentioned calling security and police, like, is there anything else? Like, are there community resources that we should have on deck that make sure we have this? And I I'm saying this guys probably a whole bunch of hospital policies need to be updated after this interview. But like tell us what are those things that we should also have in place? So, one we know what to do and then if any if anyone's listening that has input to a policy to help make sure that this is in place for the next person to follow what would those things be?
1: Yeah, I mean I I think having a policy, right, on certain steps to take if somebody if anybody ends up in this situation, um to where they suspect um a potential um patient have a patient have potentially being in any kind of danger um with trafficking or even in an abuse right domestic violence abusive situation and uh, we have you know at my hospital I'm I'm at a very large hospital so we have social workers um as well But just having that person uh, that you know you can go to and that is fully trained in this, which that's why I think even if you aren't going to be a um, forensic nurse or anything, even just like taking these module um, education courses through the AFN or um, even going through and just listening to the online didactic portion of the Colorado Saint Safe program just to get a better understanding of how to even just talk to these patients, right? Um, But also, I think hospitals should also be implementing resource information just in like generalized areas, right? Because sometimes it's really hard to get somebody alone. We know that one of the most common places that someone in these situations can be alone is sitting on a toilet, right? So if we can, right now, that's what we're working on in my hospital right now is in every single um, bathroom stall, um, in every single patient room, in, you know, all over the hospital, hospital, in clinics, um, is to have a QR code that goes to our website that has safe houses and all kinds of resources, um, trauma resources and advocacy groups, and so that they can you know, save that information um, and, and then be able to reach out later when they're in a better situation to actually ask for help. Um, maybe if they were able to get away, um, also having on there that, you know, letting them know the hospital is a safe place to come if you need help. And that's why it's also so important that we start by believing everybody that comes forward, right? Because one of the big things that, um, either traffickers or abusers will say is no one's going to believe you. Nobody cares about you. You are nothing, And we need to make sure that they know that that's not true um, if they come to the hospital asking for help. I agree. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for that. This has been a really good and
0: informative interview. It was a a great conversation. I was like, I need a CEU for this. I learned a whole bunch of stuff in this because this was really great.
1: Yeah. And I do have one more walking wise. It's a a building an anti-trafficking school culture that is going to be going live on the Academy of Forensic Nursing website. Um, It's one of their webinars on June 14th from noon to one Eastern Standard Time. It is free to members and I believe it's $25 for anyone who wants to take it. Uh, it was created, this module system was created by Carla Hyman, um, who's actually not in healthcare. She's an entrepreneur. And it's, it's really great. She's created this whole module system to educate schools. So we'll start with school nurses, and then go to school staff, like Teachers and principals, and then go to parents and try to educate parents on human trafficking, and then eventually educate uh, the students on human trafficking and who's the safe adult. Because we need to remember that, um, like you had said before, just in the United States, somebody is sexually assaulted every 68 seconds, but every nine minutes, that person is a child, right? So this happens so often within. You know, any community, it can affect anybody. Um, human trafficking, um, you know, they reach out to those who can be manipulated the most. That's children, right? That's people in our foster system. And so I think this CEU module webinar, uh, that's going to be June 14th is going to be a very, very important one. And if you have kids, um, you don't have to be a nurse to go. Right. I think it'd be a really interesting one to sit in on and then reach out to your schools and say, hey, how can we implement this into our schools? I think this is a really great thing for our schools. And um, and it can be, you know, formulated to that specific school, you know, working with the principals and the school system on what they would like their students to know and their teachers and um, school counselors and school nurses to know and how to identify these these kids.
0: I think this is so important, guys, and especially, you know, whether you have kids mm-hmm. or whether you're you're like your super auntie or super uncle, you know, most of us have some child in our family and we want the best for them. So we want the people who we you know, we trust them with our the teachers in school. They spend just like, look, y'all, we spend most of our time at work. They spend kids spend most of their time at school. So we want the people who are caring for our, our kids to really be informed and aware of this as well. And I'm I'm pretty sure there's, there'll be there's the opportunity for that education to also go out to kids to raise awareness so they can look out for one another and discourage these type of things from happening, um, uh, with our youth. I think that's really important. Oh my gosh, tons of great information, Leah. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you. You guys, you have to check out Leah, follow her on social media. As a matter of fact, Leah, tell the folks where they can follow you, learn more about you, and all those type of good things.
1: Yes. So on TikTok and on Instagram, I am Off the Clock Nurse. And uh, and then I also have a website that I haven't really updated <laughs> recently. Um, but it's more toward that's more towards travel nursing stuff. Um, and that's off the she, for her to be off the clock, she
0: stays on the clock, guys, with all of these other things. Don't let the name fool you. She stays busy. But we love it. because, And I love it that like, there are so many awesome nurses out there. That's one of the coolest things about the show. I get to talk to all of the cool people. And even if I have an interview, that's not to say you're not cool. Just FYI. But I'm just saying, the people that we follow on social media, we get to have like a deeper conversation, look at what they're working on. And we learn so much in the process. Guys, this is the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. So I think this show actually kind of doubles stuff that I need to know. I'm a mom. I need to know this for my children, but I also need to know this as a provider for people in the community. So Leah, thank you so much for all the work, great work that you're doing. Keep it up. Um, I'm sure you're inspiring. You've inspired the future generation of SANE nurses to come because now they know where to go. Um, And you know who to go to for a mentor, guys. Slide into her DMs. Okay, slide into them. Uh, And then also, shout out to nurse.org. Thanks so much to them. They are great family and friends of nurses. They support us in so many different ways. So if you haven't already, make sure to visit nurse.org. Follow them on social as well. Everything from nursing school, scholarships, what it's like being, you know, a nursing student, NCLEX, new grad, every stage in your nursing life and career. Um, nurse.org is there for you. So thanks. Shout out to them. And guys, if you're I'd uh, love to know what your comments and thoughts are on the show, um, Leo would like to know, I'd like to know. So please send us your comments, leave your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast platform, wherever you're streaming this. And then you can also email me at nurse at nurse.org. And check this out. You can also send us a voicemail or you can text us at 725-910-9676. Let us know what you think. And if you have an idea for a show, we'd love to hear that as well. And I'm Nurse Alice, so follow me on social. Ask Nurse Alice, and then until next time, guys, uh, please, please, please make good choices. Be kind to one another, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.